This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Inna alhamdulillah nahmaduhu nasta'inuhu nasta'gfiruhu. Wa na'udhu billahi min shuroori anfusina wa min sayyat ahmalina. من يهد الله فلا مدل له ومن يدلله فلا هادي الله أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدًا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم الحمد لله السلام عليكم وبركاته الحمد لله first I would like to just uh, congratulate all the young people who come out <coughs> to be at this uh, program. And uh, most of all, I congratulate you for, alhamdulillah, holding on to your Islam. You know, you know holding on to Islam today is a, is a, uh, is a very uh, tremendous challenge for our young people. And for Muslims in general, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that there will come a time, you know, hold on, holding on to one's religion, or one's deen, would be like holding hot hot coal, you know, because of the trials and the temptation and so many things that will pull you away. Also, the prophet peace be upon him, he said that one of the seven categories of people that will be under the shade of Allah's mercy or under the shade of Allah's throne on the day of judgment, when there will be no shade, it will be quite hot and people will be waiting to be, to give, to, to be uh, held accountable. And one of those categories of people amongst the seven will be a young person, a young person who held on to his deed. And so, alhamdulillah, we congratulate you. Uh, it is no, it is no uh, uh, accident, or it is not incidental, that the Quran you know, highlights and focuses quite a bit on young people. You'd be surprised to know. A lot of lessons we learn, you know, concerning the, the struggle of young people in the Quran. Uh, and, the, and, and the reason behind it is because young people are always at the center. The young people is the youth. It's always like the, the life, the life of the community, really. It's the, the life of any movement or any uh, mechanism, you know, to, uh, to, to, to struggle to bring about good and change in, in a society. We look at the example of Ibrahim, alayhi salam. We read in the Quran, Allah Ta'ala gives us an example of Ibrahim as, as a youth, even though he's a prophet, as a youth, as a young boy. And we learn many lessons, you know, uh, uh, from the encounter that Ibrahim salam had with his father and his people, you know, namely uh, challenging their idolatry, challenging their, uh, uh, their, their shirk or their polytheism, you know, associating the partners with Allah, he challenged them. And, and most of you know the story. When Ibrahim, uh, uh, when, when his people were, were went away on some outing, and Ibrahim broke up all of their idols, broke up all of their idols, See, and uh, when they came back and they wanted to know who broke up the idols, and someone says, some young person, some youth, 
And they mentioned Ibrahim and they questioned Ibrahim, alayhi salam. You know, uh, uh, who broke up our idols? And, and so, uh, the, probably Ibrahim as a young boy, as a youth, uh, taught, gave them a lesson in common sense. You know, uh, ask the big one. Ask the big idol. He broke all of them up except one. Ask the big one. And they, and they said, now you know good and well that this, this idol cannot talk to us. And so Ibrahim said, well, why you, why you worship him then? <laughs> See, a lesson in common sense. You know, a lesson in common sense. A lesson of Tawheed and how we should be focused. And so again, we learn a lot from that. Also, we look at the, uh, a great lesson in the example of uh, Ibrahim's son, Ismail. Another young person. You know, the, the, we learn the lesson of, of obedience. Obedience to Allah. Because when Allah sent Ibrahim, you know, when Allah sent the command for Ibrahim to sacrifice a young son, Ismail, and he came to him and said, oh, my son, my Lord, you know, told me to sacrifice you. What do you what's your opinion? You know, what's your view? What do you think about this? And, uh, and Ismail said, hey, do what your Lord has commanded you to do. Obedience to Allah. You see? Alhamdulillah. And so we learned a great lesson in this here. And of course, we know that Allah, you know, uh, compensated the sacrifice with a ram. But it was a lesson of obedience and love of Allah. And love of, love of, love of, 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 of the deen. You know, beyond the love of anything else. Uh, we also can find in the Quran the story of Yusuf, again, a young person, young person, lessons of struggle in his life, you know, uh, the lessons of patience, patience and endurance because of the many hardships that he was faced with because of the jealousy of his uh, brothers and, and other uh, situations that took place during his life, during his young life, having to go to prison, you know, uh, ha having to be tested, his honor. You know, his honor being attacked. You know, and Allah uh, giving him the strength to, to preserve his honor. He, you know, he, and, and giving him the strength to be able to, to uh, 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 endure and overcome the lusts, you see, of, 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 of the women, you see. And so, alhamdulillah, he ends up going to prison. And so we learn a lot of the lessons of, again, patience and, 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 his, and being focused as a young person on, 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 on the mission. You know, his purpose in life is to remind people of Allah. Allah, Allah, Allah. When he got into prison, you know, we know he, he gave the dawah. He didn't get distracted. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He was patient. So again, young people, the youth. And so these are all stories from the Quran in which you are familiar with, I'm sure. And if you are not, then inshallah, I would encourage you to read the Quran and get, and get these lessons. Luqman, the wise and advice that he gave his young son. You know, these are all you know, important lessons for our young people. You know, you know the, the, the advice that his father gave, gave his son, you know, to, to, to focus on Allah, to, to preserve his ibadah, and always single out Allah alone in worship, and always, you know, and never associate any partners with Allah, for that's the greatest injustice that a man can, or a person commit. So these are the lessons, and he admonished him and he encouraged him to have patience and to respect his parents, and always strive to have good akhlaq and good conduct and good manners and to be patient with whatever the challenges that he was faced with. And so these are just some of the examples and there are others, but these are some examples to show you again the importance and the value of our young people. The Prophet ﷺ said, value your youth before your old age. In other words, you know, don't waste time. Don't waste time. Take care of what you're supposed to take care of. You know, learn your religion, learn your deed, get an education, be productive, you know, be productive. 
You know, don't lay up. Don't lounge around. Don't be wayward. You know, take advantage of your youth. Because once you get old, you can't, you can't, you can't go back. Take advantage of it now. When you look at the world, look at the challenges before you and say, well, what, what can we do to better the world? We both always think like that as young people, how we can you know, change the world for the better. No doubt we live in a very challenging time and, 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 and things look very bleak for Muslims. But young people with vision can make the difference. Remember again, we go back to the young people. The Prophet his example, and those young people that were around him, you'd be surprised to know, in the first three years, in the first three years of the Prophet's dawah, in the first three years of the Prophet's mission, after three years of giving dawah, spreading Islam, we learn in the Sirah that the Prophet had about 40, about 40 supporters, 40 Sahaba, and half that, half, half of that 40 were under 20. Half were under 20. Ali ibn Abi Talib was nine when he embraced the deen. He was nine years old. Talha, Talha ibn Ubaidullah and Zubair ibn Awam. They were 11, year old, 11 years old, both of them. So nine and 11 and 12. Ibn Masud was 14 years old. These were the Prophet's young companions. You see? Uh, Uthman ibn Affan, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he was 17, Uthman was 20. In fact, the, 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 the 10 companions who were promised paradise, the Ashram of Bashrim, half of them were, were young people. So the Prophet was surrounded by a lot of young people. When Umar ibn Qatab became Muslim, some years later, you may be like, you know, the fifth or sixth year, year five, about the fifth year of the Prophet's mission, he was just 26 years old. So sometimes when we read the stories of the Sahaba, we have this image of the Sahaba being old people. The oldest person with the Prophet when he started to die was Abu Bakr and his uncle Hamza. See? And maybe one or two others. But the rest, they were young. They were un most of them were under 30. And half of them were under 20. Zayd ibn Thabit, one of the Prophet's young companions again, was 14 years old. 14 years old. So the Prophet understood and knew the value of the young people and he used them. He used them to work for the deen. So Zayd was 14 years old, and the Prophet made him his secretary. His secretary. He used to write down revelation for the Prophet. He was so brilliant as a young man that the Prophet told him to go and live amongst the Hebrews, go live amongst the Jews, and study the, the, the language of the Jews so he can come back to the Prophet and be able to give Prophet Muhammad some information about some of the things that they were doing, some of the plots and, and schemes that they were involved in in Medina to undermine the Islamic Dawah. Yes. And he learned the Hebrew language in two weeks two weeks so again the value of the youth you know this is what we uh, uh, learn when we study that period and so again like I said you know uh, I congratulate you young people subhanAllah you know for holding on to your Islam you know and, try and going to school I'm sure you're all students here utilizing your time trying to learn trying to improve yourself improve the condition of your family improve the condition of our community and and improve the condition of our society and the world. That's what you have to be about. And of course, you know, that's our theme, you know, this tour. You know, community, leadership, empowerment, and vision, you know. SubhanAllah. So you have a lot of challenges. And so the Sheikh will come and, and probably, you know, mention some of those to you. You know, there's a lot of challenges out there. You know, we have to, we have to look in terms of how we can change the world. First, of course, we have to change ourselves. We have to change our ummah. And the challenge for you young people 
is to, is to bring about the kind of reform in the ummah so that, that the ummah will once again reflect the characterization that Allah wa ta'ala characterized the first ummah. كُنْتُمْ قَيْرْ أُمَّةٍ أُقْرِجَةٍ لِنَاسِ تَعْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْحَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ That you are the best ummah raised up for mankind because you enjoin good and you forbid wrong and you believe in Allah wa ta'ala. The early Muslims, they were, they were the model ummah. They were the model community. So we're talking about reviving and empowering our community and establishing our community. We have to follow the model. You see? So your challenge is to bring that, is to bring that model back. You know? And it's not a challenge that, that, that cannot you know, uh, uh, be achieved in terms of, you know, again, bringing the ummah back together. You know? we, we need new life, new blood, a new thinking. And that using you know, fresh thinking that comes from the young people. Sometimes the old people are setting their ways and they don't want to change. But as knowledge come to you, as knowledge come to you, the challenge for you is to take that knowledge to bring about the change. And the first challenge in terms of reforming our ummah so, it can be, so, it can, so we can bring it back to the honor that it once was in the beginning, we got to correct our Islamic knowledge. We got to get correct Islamic knowledge. We got to make sure that we understand the Islamic belief system, the aqidah. And we, we have to understand the importance of always focusing on Allah, tawheed. This is important. You know, many Muslims today, young and old, you know, they, they have this casual attitude. You know, about Tawheed. They, they look, at it, look at it in a light matter. No, it is the issue of the Ummah. It is the issue of the Ummah. It is the issue of the Ummah. Because many Muslims are confused. So how can we correct our community if we don't know who Allah is? We have no knowledge of Allah. How are we going to call people to Allah? And we're ignorant of Allah. You see? And, and we manifest that in the things that we say and the things that we do. How are we going to call people to Allah when we have incorrect information? You see, so that's the first challenge. Getting a good Islamic education. Understanding the deen, understanding Islamic belief, the way the early Muslims understood it. First challenge. Then we can begin. See, if the foundation is not correct, then the rest of it ain't going to be correct. So we got to start from that premise. You see, the Sahaba, the early Muslims, they understood Allah. They understood Allah. They understood Tawheed. They were very simple people. But today, you know, today, we don't know Allah. You know, we don't know what shirk is. The companions, they understood what it was. Today, we don't understand what it is. And so that's why a lot of Muslims involved in shirk, even though they claim to be Muslim, even though they claim to believe in one Allah. One Allah. Just like the Christians, they say the same thing. They claim to believe in one God. We believe in monotheism, as they say. You see, but then why do they worship three in one? You know, why do they worship Jesus? Why do they make Jesus God? That's some confusion there. You see, why do they call on Jesus? But you had some Muslims, you know, the same thing. Why do they, you, you, you know, you say you believe in the oneness of Allah. But why do you call on awliya? Why do you, why do you pray it? Why do you turn the graves of, of righteous men, you know, or graves of the prophets into places of worship? Why do you do this? So this is part of the sickness in our ummah because there are ignorance of shirk and our ignorance of ta'i that you, this is the challenge for you, my young brothers and sisters. You know, may Allah raise you to be like Ibrahim alayhi salam when he saw the shirk. When he saw the shirt in the ummah and he challenged them and he broke up all those idols. So what you people doing? May Allah raise you up to be like the young people of the cave. And Allah said, and they were young people. They were youth in the cave. You see, Allah, and Allah increased them in guidance. You see what I'm saying? And they maintained the tawheed. They, they focused on Allah and they didn't involve themselves in the shirt. 
that their society, their elders and their parents and their people involved, they removed themselves to protect the aqidah and to protect their deen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us like that. So this is the challenge. This is the, the challenge. And of course, the challenge of building, you know, you know, you know, from that foundation and then from there building a strong brotherhood. A strong brotherhood. Brotherhood and community go together. Brother, the jama'ah and the community go together. The foundation of the, of the jama'ah is the brotherhood. The real brotherhood, like it was in the early, early period of Islam. Where it didn't matter whether you were Arab or non, or non-Arab. Where it, didn't, where, where it didn't matter whether you were white or you were black. You see? Or, or you know, uh, it didn't matter whether you were red or yellow or brown. You know, we were all, like the Prophet said, you know, every Muslim is a brother to another Muslim. So every time a Muslim saw another Muslim, Alhamdulillah, they were happy to see him and they loved him or her. You see? And they respected him and him or her. You see? Based upon the car, common origin Allah created all of the human beings for. Surely Allah has created you from a male and a female and made you into nations and tribes that you may come to know one another, not that you may despise each other. Verily, most honorable of you in the sight of Allah is he who has righteousness, who has, he who is more God-conscious. We have to bring that back. Because what happens today in our world, in, in the Muslim ummah today, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We're a bunch of hypocrites. Shame on us. And we want to call mankind and tell them, yeah, Islam is this and Islam got the solution for racism and all that. And we're the biggest racists. We're the biggest racists. We ought to hang our heads in shame. But the early Muslims, they were, they were a model, an example, you know, of, of the ummah, you know, un, you know with, with that diversity. And they loved each other. It wasn't about, no, and, and they intermarried. They broke the barriers of racism. They intermarried. They, they married across tribal lines and family lines. You young people, that's your, your, that's your challenge. If we're going to reform our community, we have to take it back the way it was in the early period. And in closing, and there are many challenges, of course. There are many challenges. You know, we have to break down the barriers, you know, uh, even in terms of our interacting with each other, our various communities, our various misogynists. You know, we all, you know, separate from each other. How are we going to set an example for the non-Muslims? You know, we always talk about interfaith dialogue. You hear that, Shay? Interfaith dialogue with the Jews and the Christians. Why are we interfaith dialogue with us, the different mathabs? and the different massages, and the different imams, and different scholars. Why are we interfacing with that? We need to correct that bunch of hypocrites. It's sad. And we, and we, and we are proud, and we, and we boast, and we brag about, you know, the relationship we have with the Jews and the Christians. But we have no relationship with each other. We don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to sit down and resolve and have a civil discussion, discussing the issue of other differences within the ummah with respect. It's always like, no, we don't want to sit. We're not sitting and we're fighting and killing each other like you see going on in the Muslim world. This is a challenge for you young people. That ain't the way our prophet. He said, do not become unbelievers after me cutting each other's throats. That's what he said. And of course, once we get that together, or while we're trying to get that together as a community, then we have to always reach out. We got to give the doubt. We have to spread the message of Islam and be good examples of that in our character, absolutely. You know? And talk to the neighbors and talk to your co-workers and your colleagues in school. You know, spread Islam, relate to them, be involved in, in, in the things that are going on in the society. Make a difference but be an example. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi إن الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه الحمد لله 
الحمد لله وكفى والصلاة والسلام على سيد المصطفى صلى الله عليه وسلم وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه ومن ولا وبعض فإن أصدقال حديث كتاب الله وخير الحدي حديث محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالات في النار أيها الأخوة الكرام أخوات السيدات السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Dear uh, Muslim brothers, and if there's a non-Muslim uh, brother or sister or colleague or um, faculty member or staff member here, um, we say, peace be upon those who follow the guidance. Uh, brothers and sisters, I think that if you were to take just a capsule, just take a handful of what the Imam told you, that concentrated, you know, he took like a two-hour lecture and he put it into like 20 minutes, you know, two hours and put it into 20 minutes. Well, if you can just digest, if you caught just the main points, put that in your pocket, take that home and reflect on that. That might even be enough for you. You know, I'm of the opinion that one of the mistakes that we make when we do lectures and we put together forums and conferences, we overload it. We overload it. We think we got to have four or five different speakers. Somebody come from Germany, somebody come from Saudi Arabia, somebody come from Egypt, this one come from America, and somebody else come from whatever, and it'd be like a one or two day conference. To me, that's overloading it. That's too much light. You can't look straight at the sun. That's too much light. You know, if you go to an operating room where they're doing some brain surgery, you ain't got no five surgeons in there. You know, it's building. When they designed this university, ain't no five different companies. When they build a bridge, ain't no five or six different architects. So we Muslims, because we live in, you, we got so much self, low self-esteem. We don't think we can accomplish nothing. So we think we need personalities. You know, if, if you put up a big sign and say, Sheikh so-and-so is coming. Oh, here we go. But you ain't listening to the Sheikhs that's around you. Ain't nobody listening to the cookbars on Friday. You ain't reading the Quran. You're not reading the, the sunnah of Rasulullah Otherwise, you wouldn't need no five different shakes. And you wouldn't be hung up on no particular shake coming from somewhere. Because to be honest with you, I'd be wondering to myself, what do people want me to say? I mean, the Quran is already there. The Hadith is already there. The Islamic history is already there. The companions are already there. They already did it. Then you got ulama here. You got muftis, maulanas, you got mullahs, you got students of knowledge, you got amirs, you got qadis, you got all kind of people, long beards, tall turbans, I mean long thobes, big masjids with minarets. It would seem to me that this country here, y'all got it all. But you are a microcosm of the rest of the world. On the outside, when it comes to names, names, and when it comes to images, we got it all. But inside, there ain't nobody there. If you don't believe so, go to the biggest masjid in this country. I don't know which one it is. You know. 
Go to the biggest masjid in this country. Be there for Fajr. Get there a half an hour early and sit there when they call the Iqamah. Big masjid, the one that holds 5,000, one that holds 6,000. Go there and I guarantee you, you won't find nobody even born, you won't find no more than 15 or 20 people there for Fajr. Why? Because we're about show. You know, we all want to build another masjid. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I can see, if all the people that make in Fajr, I only been to seven masjids. I, I was at about seven masjids. If all, and they tell me there's 160 of them. If all the people praying in them 160 masjids went to one masjid for Fajr, and there were 10 or 15, and that's a whole lot. If there were 10 or 15 people praying Fajr at the 160 mosques, how many people would be there? Wouldn't be but 1,500 people there. And even if they had to drive 45 minutes to get there, it'd be better for them to pray 1,500 people praying in one masjid for Fajr behind one imam listening to one leader. That would be better for us. We'd get something else out of it. Close all the rest of them down. Pray one Fajr. Matter of fact, that big masjid, we should all go there and pray. Juma. 160 masjids. Close 100 of them down for Juma. And pray Juma in 50 of them. Let the people pray in the parking lots. Let them fill up inside, downstairs, pray in the parking lots. And if there's a field next to it, put some cloth down and pray in that field. It'll be better for you. Because otherwise we be just keep on building on to this whole hypocrisy. We want more and more and more. We want, we want quantity, but we don't have no what? Huh? He got no quality. Now I understand that talking this way means that I probably don't close the door on a lot of messages that I might go and talk to. Don't make me no difference. Close them. Don't make no difference. We ain't on no popular, popularity trip. We ain't trying to cover all the masjids in this country to see how popular we can get, how much exposure we can get. Close them. Close the door to me because they're going to be opened up for somebody else. It might be a hurricane. It might be a tsunami. It'll be opened up for somebody. We Muslims need to change our attitudes. We need to change our disposition. And I think that if somebody asked me, say, Sheikh, how do you think the condition of the Muslim world is going to change? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you straight up. Don't look for it to change with no old folks. Old folks don't get comfortable. Some of them is stone cold, petrified, and afraid. Old folks living in a comfort zone. Old folks don't want to disturb nothing. They want to ride out here on a cloud. You see what I'm saying? They want to just retire and chill out. They don't want to, they ain't going to bust an egg, like an imam said. They ain't going to bust an egg. They ain't going to throw a pie in a pie factory. They ain't going to do nothing. Even if something is wrong, they're not going to stand up and say it's wrong. They're going to wait till they get home and talk around some doubles, talk around some curry and say, you know, you know, he shouldn't have said that. Old folks. But old folks, look, I'm not saying don't follow old folks. 
Because don't be no fool, young folks. You ain't got nobody to follow but some older folks. You got to follow some older folks. They done fell in holes, you know, before you. So they can tell you, hold up, watch out now. Don't go down that road. So listen to them. Listen to them. Use them as a guide. Use their wisdom. Understand their guidance. Listen to their words. You know, sit down, listen to their stories. But if you want to move, if you want to change something, sit with the old folks. Learn from the old folks. Listen and respect the old folks. But get up from them circles and move. All you young people that don't graduated from the madrasas, Dao Ulum and Dao this and Dao that, you got to come out them madrasas and you got to move. Because you stay in them madrasas, you're going to keep on, you're going to keep capitulating. You're going to keep on insulating. You're going to keep on adding more onto the same static, stagnation, cultural fixation, and you're going to wind up in the same ditch. You got to move. Come out of this university and move. Come out of the masjid and move. The issue is where you're moving to. That's what you got to ask yourself. I know that young people have a lot of problems. Where are you right now? That's my question to you. Ask yourself, where are you right now? Now, I'm not talking about we right here in this room here. I know that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where's your head? Where you at? What you think about? Where's your heart? Where's your mind? Where do you want to be at in five or ten years? Because those who are plotting, those who are plotting to dominate you and to keep you in intellectual, social, economic slavery, those who are plotting that they are teaching their children where to be at in the next 10 to 20 years. See, because it's about planning. Those who plan, see, those who fail to plan, they plan to fail. Those who fail to plan, they plan to fail. See, the enemies of Islam, who we talk about is, you know, entering our countries and violating our principles and, you know, killing our children and raping our women and, you know, and, and putting our good men and strong men in the prisons and just running amok and exploiting our resources. The enemies of Islam, they do that because they are the children of those who planned 50 years ago. Huh? Like I tell you what a lady told me. Her name was uh, her name was Mrs. Rosenberg. We used to go buy some clothes from her, you know, down in Manhattan. We used to go buy some clothes. We go out and sell. So we used to talk to her and her husband one day. So you know, she said she said to us, "You young men need to think about what you need to do." She said, "Y'all y'all y'all talk good, and I know y'all can sell because y'all can keep coming back and forth, back and forth. But every time you come back, you're buying the same amount." Why you keep buying the same amount? You should be buying 10% more each time you come. 
And then y'all shouldn't have to be coming back the same. You, if you come back to me for three years, this means that you buy yourself selling. Why don't 10 of y'all put your money together and come buy? You're going to buy more. But you don't trust each other. That's what she said. That's your problem. I know y'all Muslims and y'all don't want to hear me talk because I'm Jewish. Y'all don't want to talk to me. But let me tell y'all something. Look, let me tell you something. I know y'all was born unfortunate, you know, in different whatever situation. But you've grown now. You're living in America now. You ain't not slaves now. You make your own choices. But let me tell you something about choices, she said. I'm going to share with Ms. Rosenberg. So this ain't no high deep. You know, ain't no high deep. So you, you can throw it out the window if you want to. But I'm going to just give you this here. Because for me, I listen well to what she said. She said, I got a, she said, I got a daughter and I got a son. She said, I gave them three choices in life. She said, you can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer or you can get out of my life and I don't want to see you no more. That's it. You can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can get out of my life and I never want to see you again because you're nothing. I'm going to pay for you to be a doctor and I'm going to pay for you to be a lawyer, but I'm not going to pay nothing for you to be nothing. Mrs. Rosenberg, she got... That was like about 30 years ago, I remember she said that to us. Ms. Rosenberg, both of her children became lawyers. Both of them became lawyers because the parents didn't get no, no choice. She planned 20 years in front. And you, young people, you got to plan 5, 10 years. Where do you want to be? I ask you. Why did you choose the particular discipline that you're studying right now? Ask yourself. You want to be a dentist? You want to be a, you want to be a pharmacist? You want to be an engineer? You want to be an architect? You want to be a teacher? You want to be a sociologist? You want to be a doctor? Why? Because you're going to get paid. Is that your incentive? Then you're just a fool. You're just going to be an educated fool. You're just going to come into a system that's already exploiting people and you're going to accept the standards of exploitation and you're going to offer that service understanding that using that service you will become part of the upper class that will give you the privilege to continue to exploit. Because that's what education in the Western Hemisphere and the Western world is about. Getting to a station where you become almost like an untouchable. You can have two chickens in every pot two cars in every garage, and you can have more clothes than you can wear, you can have all the privileges and all the fun, you know what I'm saying? That's what it's about. If that's why you want to become a professional, I say, shame on you. Shame on you. As a Muslim. Now I can understand a non-Muslim thinking like that, because maybe they ain't got the inspiration. They don't have the mandate of Islam on them. But a Muslim... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you a mandate. He told you and me that no matter what our situation is right now, if we fear Allah and we use the resources he has given to us, regardless of the condition of the Muslim world, we can collect it, we can rebuild it, we can reform it, and the earth can come back under our hands. If you don't believe that, you ain't no real Muslim. That's the Islamic vision. If you don't believe that, then you live in some la-la land. You, you, I don't know what kind of Muslim, forget about madhabs 
and all that. I don't know what kind of Muslim we are. Because you always got to keep in mind that the 1.5 billion Muslims with all their wealth, with all their problems, in all the countries that they are in today, spread out all over with all their diversity and languages and everything, it came from a few who were oppressed, ragtag people. The Prophet Sallallahu had nothing but a ragtag crew. A ragtag crew living in tents, drinking milk from camels in the desert. You know, people that didn't have no education, didn't have no facilities, didn't have no institutions. They, and the world was against them. The Prophet's family turned against him. His whole nation turned against him. Then Rome, Persia, Abyssinia, all the countries of the world turned against him. But he had Allah on his side. And when Allah gave the Prophet his mandate, gave him his mantle, gave him his mission, and then gave him a few people and some malaika and the Quran and his behavior, here we are today. We live in now. We live in now in the aftermath of the Islamic phenomenon. We live in, in the aftermath. You and I never even tasted what Islam has done to the world. Yet we're Muslims. Can you understand that the Prophet Sam was born in the year 570 AD? Now try to think back like that, because y'all, some of y'all students of history. 570 in a desert where no planes was flying in where there wasn't no tanks to go out there couldn't no trucks go out there nobody didn't even want to go out in the desert that's where the prophet was born that's where Allah sent Islam he sent the Quran down there can you imagine that these kinds of people so the Quran came to the prophet in the year 610 how many years later was that Come on, y'all, y'all, y'all studying algebra and geometry and trigonometry. How many years is that after that? Five, ten, from 570 to 610, how many years is that? Huh? 40. Yeah. 40 years later, Allah set the Quran down on this man Muhammad wasalam, And 40 years later, 40 years in the year 650, Rome, Persia, Abyssinia, the whole world was under the feet of the Muslims. SubhanAllah. Think about that now. If you don't think this Quran is powerful, if you don't think that the Prophet's life is powerful, if you think he was just sitting in the masjid making dhikr, if you think he was just wrapping his head in turbans and wearing long robes, if you think the Prophet was just walking around talking hadith, if you think that's what they were doing, you think about that. We have more resources in Trinidad than the Muslims in that time had. I say to you, in your country, Trinidad, a small island of 1.3, 1.4, whatever million people, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, 50 years, 50 years after the Prophet ﷺ passed away, 50 years, there were not 1.5 million followers of the Prophet They did not have the resources that this country has. But they conquered, they challenged, 
and they conquered the world. And from the year 800 BC until the year 1500, they ruled the world with less resources than you have in your own country. What's the difference between them and us? They had inspiration. They had commitment. They had the reality. They were certain. They were not deceived. And they were not serving the dunya, but the dunya was serving them. What did being Muslim or serving Islam have anything to do with your choice of study? Ask yourself that question. Ask yourself. Whatever it is you're studying, did being Muslim and did Islam and wanting to serve Islam, did that have anything to do with your choice of study? Well, I'll tell you something. If it didn't, chances are when you graduate, it won't. Because don't tell me that somehow or another, once you become whatever it is you want to become, don't tell me that once you get to the point where you want to be, all of a sudden your Islamic commitment going to come up and you're going to become some kind of a Mother Teresa or Father Terry. You're going to become a humanitarian overnight once you graduate, once you get your little office and, you know, once you get your little house and once you get your little position and, you know, once you get that little, that little whatever it is that everybody is looking to get. All of a sudden, we're going to become humanitarians. Then we want to, we want to strive in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We want to make some sacrifices. No. Once you get there, you want to remain there. And you don't want to create no problems or no waves. Because you will be happy. And you won't give a damn about whoever that you passed on the way. Because those who's there right now is like where you are. Nobody asked them that question. Well, I'm asking you that question right now. Did Islam and your service to Islam or being a Muslim have anything to do with the choice that you made to study what you're studying? What are your feelings and what are your convictions about global issues today. What do you think about when you hear about the slaughtering of Muslims in Chechnya? How do you feel? Can you just sit down and eat your Big Mac? Oh, that's right, McDonald's ain't here no more. Can you just bite down in that, that, that zinger? Can you just be, sit down there and eat your, you know, your hot fries and drink your Pepsi Cola and how you feel about the slaughtering of Muslims in Chechnya? How you feel about the slaughtering of Muslims in Afghanistan? How you feel about the suffering and the slaughtering of Muslims in Iraq? See, you only get a glimpse of it. You don't get the smell of the burning flesh. You don't get the smell of the rotting corpses out in the street. You don't get the sight of the skulls of young children that's been busted over and run over by tanks. You don't get to see Muslim women bellies cut open. You don't get to see 
Palestine, you only get a glimpse CNN, Fox News, what they want to bring to you. And you just say, then you go back to drinking your Pepsi-Cola or eating your doubles. Why? Because basically we have been made insensitive. We have been preconditioned to think that somehow the Muslims of those areas, they not like us. They in a situation that we say, mashallah, we ask Allah, oh Allah help them, oh Allah help them. But five minutes later, we trying to help ourselves as much as we can get. So I ask you, how do you feel about the global issues in the world today? Forget about the Muslim situations. What do you feel about the global issues in the world today? What do you think about globalism? Some of you are studying economics. Some of you are studying government. Some of you are studying politics. Some of you are studying sociology. So what do you think about the terminology globalism? Because I can tell you as a sociologist what that really means. It's a high-powered word that means global imperialism. It means controlling all of the resources of the world. The material resources and the human resources for the service and under the domination of one group of people. That's what globalism means. Now that one group of people could be representatives of some so-called developed countries. Y'all know what the G8, G9, G11, G12, G whiz. Yeah, they are the G8. They are the greedy who is dominating the needy. And the world has always been between the needy and the greedy. That's what G stand for. They don't stand for great because they ain't nobody great but God. But they want us to think that they something special. G8, G9. Yeah, they the greediest and most godless people in the world who've been dominating the resources of the world for the last 150 years. But you know, times change. Times will change. Allah will bring a people who will bring another people to their knees, bring them to their senses, make them start to think and make them want to begin distributing what they took. Because Allah got his own way. You know, I believe, and let me give you my personal perspective on something. I believe that the people who took over 110 million slaves out of Africa, I believe, yeah, it was nice of them. It was nice of them, like, after 150 years, you know, to give them emancipation. You know, y'all heard that word, right? Y'all heard that word? That was real nice. Set them free in the streets. Set them free in the fields. But give them nothing. They still slaves. But they gave them a party. They gave them a day to party. And remember how we set you free. But they never said I'm sorry. They never gave them compensation. So what is emancipation without compensation? The British, they ain't never said sorry about what they did in India. 
They never said sorry about nothing. What they did nowhere in the world. The conquistadors from Spain and Portugal, they never said sorry about what they did in South America. The American, my country, they never said sorry about what they, and they were the last ones to emancipate. The last ones. And if it wasn't for the fact that Abraham Lincoln had some sense, I mean, he had slaves too. But he had sense enough to know that he needed some more people to help him up north. So he said, look, let's free some of them black slaves so I know they're going to run away from the south and come up north. We can put a uniform on them, make them into buffalo soldiers. They can help us to fight against the south. So he's smart enough to do that. But it wasn't because of his goodwill. It wasn't because he was just such a loving man. No, they all had slaves and they was all beneficiaries of slavery. And you know what? I believe that if they didn't have to, and I believe that if they could, they would enslave us all over again. Because slavery takes people that's got no God consciousness. You can't do to people what they did. They talking about six million Jews. I say that's wrong. What? Well, look here. If Hitler killed six million Jews, I say that's wrong. How many people say that's wrong? It's wrong. It don't make no difference with Jews or you know or, or even if it's look. If you kill six million sheep and you ain't got no intention to eat them, you ain't got no intention to use the, the wool from them. Those are animals. It's wrong. So it's wrong to kill six million people, Jews, Christians, anybody. But Killing, slaving, taking people from their homes, changing and snatching out their culture. 110 million and only 45 million ever reached Britain, only reached America, only reached the Caribbean, and only reached the places where they were taking them. So I ask you and me, how many is left? How many is left? 70 million. That's what, and where are they? They in the Atlantic graveyard. And nobody said sorry. And nobody paid no compensation. So these take these is heartless people. These is godless people. And all the while, they were dancing and singing on Sunday. You know, they were talking about Thanksgiving. And they were talking, I mean, they said they holidays. You know, they talking about freedom from Spain and freedom from France and freedom from England. They fighting for their own. It was your great-grandfather seven, eight generations ago and you know that you are a beneficiary of the crime that they did. If you really were sorry, you would repent and give up or at least a portion of what you inherited back to those people who you took advantage of. It's not right or wrong. But they never did. And they never will. I ask you, Muslims and non-Muslims, what you think about the global situation in the world today? Do you want to become a partner in globalism? Now, I'm not talking about rebelling. I'm not talking about undermining. I'm not talking about jumping up and blowing up nothing. I'm not talking about marching out in the streets. No! I'm saying if we want to start a revolution, we should start a moral revolution in our hearts. That means we have to begin to analyze situations we have to begin to make a diagnosis and assessment of situations and we have to learn to draw the line and say this is right 
and this is wrong and this is where I stand. I'm standing on the side of right, whatever it costs. Now, to do that, I know there's a lot of challenges. And I want to talk about a few of those challenges. I want to at least name them. So we know we are on the same page and you know I ain't in, you ain't no generation gap. Because sometimes you think that these guys standing up talking with these, because y'all know I got henna in my beard. You know my beard ain't naturally like this color. You know the shake, he got henna in his beard. So you know if we took the henna out, my beard might be like my shirt, my cap. But you know, the prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and some of his companions, they used to like to wear henna. So because they like to wear it, we like to wear it. We ain't trying to disguise nothing. I mean, 60 years old is 60 years old, whichever way you want to flip it. But I want you to know that there ain't no generation gap between me and Abdul Hakim my 18 month old son ain't no generation gap between me and my grandchildren some that just went into high into college and some young semi that may be like 10 years old there's no generation gap between me and my children the youngest i mean my my, my other children other than abdul hakeem who is from 20 up to 40. no generation gap why because we can kick it about anything that's what i tell my children let's talk about anything and everything let's keep the respect let's keep the focus but let's talk about anything and everything now having said that i know some of your challenges i don't know if they got it in this uh university or not but most universities in america they got now what they call co-educational dorms do they got that here do they have that here co-educational dorms that means you know dormitories where young people is supposed to have their own like inner type um you know respect and dignity and so the girls come in the door same door and they click open their door up and go in the boys click go in the door up and go in and you know they you they share toilets and all that but i mean you know because they they focus on god and studies you know what i'm saying that's hypocrisy from the jump. They're they trapping you off from the very beginning. That's one way they're going to dominate you even before you get out of school. They're distracting you. Because that don't make no sense. How are girls going to be coming out sometime with their little towel on? How are they going to be going up and down the hallway sometime, you know, you know with that, them dresses and you know, stuff that they be wearing? How are, they not go, how are the boys not going to be distracted? How are the boys going to be coming from kicking the ball and, you know, lifting weights and all that, walking around with their chest out and their little jockey shorts on, the girls ain't going to be in the same dormitory. And you Muslims, if you send your daughters to a school that's got co-ed dorms, and you, even if you send them somewhere else where they got co-ed dorms, you are a traitor to your family. You are a traitor to Islam because you have given up the greatest gift that Allah has given to us, our children. And you're a fool. Because somehow you think she's coming back as a doctor or a lawyer or whatever the case might be, and she's going to be untouched because of the principles that you gave her. 
you facing issues of alcohol, drugs, and crime, parties and festivals. You know, down here, down here in this, this part of the world, man, you ain't got to have no reason to, to party. It's always a party. They got festivals. You know, everybody in the world know Calypso. Y'all got Calypso. Y'all got festivals. I mean, you know, every, every down here, everybody, you know, when you say, you say the Caribbean, all is like, let's say, shake. You just came from the Caribbean? So they be thinking I should be wearing a shirt, you know, with blue and mango, you know, all that on it, and, you know, like the palm trees and coconut trees, and because everybody down there is, you know, everybody down there doing the thing, you know, down in Calypso, like this Calypso. Y'all faced with that. Alcohol and drugs everywhere. And I'm not talking about in Levantil. I'm not talking about Diego Martin. I'm talking about drugs right here in the university. But y'all you know, call it like soft drugs. You know, a little snoop, no. A little, you know, a little sip. A little, a little rum, a little beer, a little so-and-so. That's how, that's soft drugs. So y'all got this challenge facing you. Now I know that Muslims generally don't drink. Muslims generally don't use drugs. Muslims generally, they don't be partying, fornicating, committing adultery. Generally, Muslims don't do it. But if you put Muslims in with others who are doing that, then it means they have tolerated that. And they have become insensitive to that. And they ain't going to speak out against that. And they're not going to tell their colleagues it's wrong. And they ain't going to say nothing about it. They're going to just let them do that. So it means you have become a silent participant. And I say that's wrong. And what about premarital sex? Now I know all these beautiful sisters sitting up here who part of the university. I know all y'all are virgins. I know ain't no sisters here that ain't married, that ain't no virgin. I mean, I just know that. Because, you know, your parents could not think anything other than that. That my daughter's not married, she going to school, and even if she got to stay in school for eight years, she ain't going to, you know, she's going to be a virgin. But I'll tell you the truth now. I don't know about Trinidad, so I ain't going to get into this. Because I don't want y'all to tell me shit you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to talk about somewhere like about 150 miles from here. How, how far is Florida? Maybe 350, 400 miles? So it's in the same like area, right? Well, let's take a Muslim who's going to school in Florida. Little girls with the hijab on like y'all got on in Florida. I mean, they got taqwa. They got Muslim parents. Well, I'll tell you what's going on in the Muslim communities there. Young girls going to school. Getting pregnant, hiding it, taking that morning after pill. And also, if, they, if the pill don't work, they ain't going to bring no baby home. Because that just messed up the whole career. So what they doing? They got Muslim girls having abortions. Because they, they, they'd rather have an abortion and keep that shame inside than to bring that shame home. Well, and whose fault is that? That's the parents who I told you committed treason. Parents who's fools. Who think they can just send their daughter someplace in an environment where they're not protected? You are facing that. And even if you're in college, what about the young brothers? Young brothers out here who's seeing all these naked women sitting next to them in the college. And I know how y'all sit. 
Don't be telling me, young know, some of you sitting in the university and it's like, you, you, you know, all the young brothers are sitting together. It don't go like that. No, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, boy. That's how it is. And you know, these girls ain't wearing no kimar. Girls ain't wearing no, nothing. They come to school with, I mean, it's almost as soon they look. Some colleges out in California, some colleges in the Western world, the girls are coming to school with a thong. They come to school with a G-string, with a thong on, and you can't say nothing. Now you tell me a young Muslim, you know, young Muslim, he got taught while he reading Quran, you know, you know, he trying to do the right thing, but a girl who's sitting in front of him got on a thong, she, or she got on something like that. Girls got on that, what's that, what's that black stuff that the bicycle people wear? Spandex. Yeah, them girls get on spandex. You know what I mean? She, she, went, she, got, she, she about like a 38, she about a 38 up and down. She got on spandex. You know, she, she dropped her eraser right in front of the brother, you know what I mean? You know, yeah. And the brother, you know, he like, what do you think? He said, Law Akbar. He forget about Astaghfirullah, he just said, Law Akbar. So he, what are he going to do for four years? And then when it comes time for Calypso, party time, what y'all call it down here? Fetzing. Yeah. Don't let man of Fetzing come. That's it. The young brother's still in school. He got to deal with it. You know, he's trying to say, stop the lie, he's trying to be, but he got to go back to school. So I'm saying, these are real challenges that parents need to talk to their children about. How they going to deal with that? What about the generation gap? Things you can't talk to your parents about. I know what they are because I just got finished doing a set of lectures that you're going to see soon called Too Hot to Handle. Things that you always wanted to talk about but you was afraid to talk to your mother about it, your father about it. You, ain't gonna, you can't go to the imam and the master and talk about it. Now y'all know what kind of things I'm talking about. I ain't even got to say what they are because they're too hot to handle. But I decided that since I had to talk to my grandchildren about it and I had to talk to other young Muslims about it, I said, look here, I'm just going to let it loose. We're going to talk about it. So y'all going to see, too hot to handle soon. They're going to really say, if they got something to say about me now, whoa, wait till you see too hot to handle. Because we got to talk. Somebody got to talk about these issues. Somebody got to talk about, talk to these boys about pornography, masturbation, and the girls too. Somebody got to talk about that afternoon, after, after morning pill, abortion. Somebody got to talk about that, premarital sex. Somebody got to talk about homosexuality and lesbianism. Somebody got to talk about that. Somebody got to talk about drugs and what kind of drugs and alcoholism. Some people got to talk about that and gambling and partying. Somebody got to talk about that. Because if parents don't talk about it, if the imams and khatibs don't talk about it, the young people talk about it. And they ain't got no guidance. They're going to come up with the wrong answers. So I decided I'm going to talk to them about it. Now I know y'all don't want to hear no fatwas, so I don't give no fatwas. What I do on the bottom of the screen, you're going to see where you can go get the fatwas, but I'm just talking to you straight up, like I talk to my grandchildren. 
and we have to talk and you have to go to somebody. If you can't go to your parents and talk about issues that are troubling you, I say go to an auntie, go to an uncle, go to somebody who you think you can talk to, but don't keep it inside of yourself. Because if you do, it might be too late. You might be talking about it after the fact. What about this gangster rap and hip-hop? Now, if I asked y'all to raise your hand, how many of y'all listen to gangster rap and hip-hop? I know y'all don't even want to raise your hand. So I don't even want to ask you to. Because if you were telling the truth, y'all would be to raise two hands. And look at the poison. Look at the poison that this gangster rap, cursing, cursing their mothers, cursing their fathers, cursing the society, cursing God, cursing everything, talking about drinking, talking about drugging, talking about fornicating, talking about killing, talking about robbing, you know, just talking about all kind of foul and filthy stuff with music and all kind of beats that the kids like and they just sing into it and all that I want to kill my father and I want to do so and so and I'm going to burn down and I'm going to drink all I can drink and I'm going to kill, run the nigga over so this and that, so and so blah blah and y'all just y'all just listening to it and say oh man you hear that one that just Eminem just made cursing his mother, y'all know that one check this out boy he, made, he got the Oscar not the Oscar though what they call it, the Emmy. They get his boy Emmy. And he cursing his mother. This boy DMX made a movie. Y'all know the movie I'm talking about. Y'all all seen it. So they giving out awards. Them boys wearing bling bling. They, they got so much diamonds and gold, they can't hardly lift their neck up. So this is the reward for the cursing. This is the reward for the corruption. This is the reward. And Master P and all them boys were drug dealers, the biggest drug dealers in New Orleans, killing people and everything. All of a sudden, Master P, he's running for councilman. So, this gangster rap and hip-hop, if y'all can't get around that, Oh, I know some of y'all is saying, well, I don't listen to that no more. I'm listening to, I, I, we be listening to Nasheeds now. So y'all have graduated from hip-hop and gangster rap to Nasheeds. So, so they done came out with this thing to kind of placate the Muslims. They know morally Muslims don't want to be listening to hip-hop and all that, so we back up a little bit and soft-shoe it and come out with these Nasheeds now. Now if this was, if y'all had some posters that Raihan was coming down here or, or, or somebody, Hamza somebody or this one whatever and he's singing all these girls would be packed up, jammed up and he'd be singing, be, oh God! About what? Some Nasheeds, just some people singing. Some little beardless girl looking boys singing. The companions of the Prophet Sallallahu said, we never even used to like to look at no young boys that didn't have no beard on their face for fear that we would be thinking like they was women. So the scholars said that even if a nasheed is to be sung, don't sit and listen to no young man who shave his beard while he's singing because he looked like a woman. So this is where we're going. And I'll tell you something, all the young brothers and sisters 
who done graduated from the Alamea, who done graduated memorizing Quran. Once they start listening to them nasheeds, they ain't gonna read no more Quran. They ain't gonna be reading no more Bukhari. They ain't gonna be reading no stories and no Sahabas. Now you're gonna find out they got a whole stack of nasheeds in their house. Now their mind is preoccupied with singing. What they call halal music. I don't know what that is. So this is one of your challenges. Then you got these contemporary styles. You know, all these shirts these brothers are wearing with all these numbers on them and all these different names on them. And okay, the sports shirts ain't that bad. I mean, you know, Michael Jackson, he was cool. You know, Kobe Bryant, he cool. You know, all them guys who, you know, can dunk a ball and run real fast and, you know, especially when, if they don't kick a goal or whatever it is, that's, that's cool. I mean, ain't too bad. But what about them shirts that you're wearing that say on it, you know, you don't know, what's them shirts, what's them styles, what's some of them names? No, I ain't talking about that. I'm not talking about him. That's straight up drugs. No, I'm talking about them, them names from them French and British, you know, uh, 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 huh? Yeah, Calvin Klein. Yeah, that's one. Huh? Who? Yeah, oh, Tommy Hilfiger. Yeah, Calvin Klein. I'll tell you, and Christian Dior, you know, and, uh, and uh, all them, some of them others. Look, check them out. Check out their lifestyles. I tell you, brothers and sisters, that you're allowing some of your daughters to wear the names of lesbians. You're letting your sons be wearing the names of some homosexuals. Because the fashion market is controlled by lesbians and homosexuals. If you don't think so, go to California, go to San Francisco. If you don't think so, go to New York, go to the Midtown, go to the places, look to the styles and watch those people. And I'll tell you, seven out of ten of these people are homosexuals and lesbians. So what we wearing? I see sisters in Mecca with a hijab on. Sister got a niqab and a hijab on. And she got on, you know, Christian Dior. A Christian Dior niqab, a Christian Dior hijab with the cross on it. You know, the sister be like, all that. You know, they be, you know, throwing all this stuff across. And the cross right there. Because Christian Dior, she got the cross on it, right or wrong? Is it right, sisters? Christian Dior got that cross on it, right? That's her insignia. Y'all wearing it in the masjid. You're wearing it in Mecca, they're selling it all around Mecca because the styles have become more important to us than just regular clothes. If I bring my children some clothes home and I bring them a t-shirt and ain't got no name on it, he say, hey, yo, pop, man, what's this? I say, son, it's the same shirt that them names is on, but it only costs $9.99. The one you want it called 49. He said, hey, Pop, look, it ain't, I can't go out like that. You know, it's just like your sons. They want to buy them sneakers. You know, they want to buy them joints that, you know, what, what, what's his name? Kobe or Michael Jordan. They want to buy some Jordans. Them Jordans, man, them joints cost 
$159 in America. So that means they cost about $750 here. And they're the same ones that's made in Korea in the same factory where they're making G-Dans. The G-Dans cost in America $20. And the Jordans cost $160. They're made in the same factory, but the G-Dans don't have Michael Jordan's name on it. But somehow or another, we think that with Michael Jordan's name on it, we're going to jump higher. So the styles done messed us up. We don't want no regular stuff. I say, why you don't buy a scarf that say Mecca on it? Why you don't buy a scarf that says Medina on it? Why you don't buy a scarf that says Sophia on it? Or you don't Khadija or whatever. No, you want a scarf that say Beyonce. Or you want a scarf that say, what that, that other whore? What's her name? The one who be sleeping with women and all that with the blonde hair. What's her name? Huh? Yeah. The one that, uh, the one that be kissing that other girl, that little, little girl was 12 years old. What's her name? Uh, huh? Yeah, Madonna and Britney Spears. Yeah. Did y'all know Britney when Britney was nine? I seen Britney when she was on a talent show with her little ribbons on her hair and all that. Britney's about, I think Britney's about 23 now. Britney done had, Britney done had, of course, by her own admission, Britney done already had about 17 abortions. She done slept with 50, 60 men. She's just, she just a little young, trash, bling bling hoe. You know, in Destiny's Child. I can go through the names of all y'all listening to. That's our daughters, our daughters singing them songs and some of the parents allow our children to put them posters up inside their rooms. You know all them tattooed boys, you know all them gangster boys talking about it, they got them, got them inside the rooms. We have to talk about that because that itself is a challenge because it's challenging your mentality. It's putting images in your mind that you can't get rid of. What about the greed and the selfishness, just wanting to be yourself. How many young people in this room here, and be honest with me, how many young people in this room here had a TV in their room when they was like 10, 12 years old? Don't tell no lie. How many? Y'all don't want to say. Because in most houses today, including the Muslim houses, mommy, mommy and daddy got a TV in their room. Their TV in the living room and Johnny and Janie got a TV in their room and you know you go you get home close your door and watch your TV or listen turn on your you know the computer if you ain't got no TV you got a computer in your room and you close that door and you look at what you want to look at especially when mom and dad go to sleep and they ain't there because we in a society that has breeded selfishness and greed. Children want their own. They want their own room, their own TV. They go out and buy their own fast food. They go inside their house and eat like little rats by themselves. You don't even sit at the table no more. There ain't no dinner table no more. We talking people eating dinner together. In most houses, there ain't no dinner table. So we have been breeded with selfishness, individualism, 
and this is generally a social breakdown. We don't care about the government. We don't care about family. We only care about ourselves. It's about doing for me, getting as much as I can, as much as I want. This is what we're about. And there's no lack, and then there's a lack of guidance. Then I ask, how many young people in here, how many people in here is 20 years old? Raise your hand. How many people here is at least 20 years old? I'm asking you a question. Okay. All of y'all need to be married. And don't tell me ain't nobody, you know, ain't nobody good enough to marry. Don't tell me you ain't find nobody qualified. Don't tell me there ain't enough brothers, there ain't enough sisters. No, you just ain't had enough of whatever it is you're trying to get. And you know, there's a psychological uh, statistic I want to tell you something about, brothers and sisters. And I want you to keep this in your mind so that you understand how important it is for you to marry when you're young. That's why the props officer said get married when you're young. Because the statistic says the more nakedness that you see, you see, the more fawahish that you see, it deadens certain cells inside the brain that makes it exciting for you when you do get married. And the reason why marriages are failing is because when they get together, they find out that the marriage, it ain't exciting as it was before they was together. Why? Because they don't seen too much. They waited too long. They have become insensitive. The girls ain't shy no more. And the boys, they beyond shy. So that's why it's important for you to think about marriage. And you would say to yourself, the excuse that I get from young people, well, I can't get married because I ain't got no job. I ain't got no money. I can't buy no house. I can't buy no furniture. So I can't get married right now. I say, well, look, where you live? They say, I live with my mom and dad. The girls say the same thing. Where you live? I live with my mom and dad. I ask them, do they have a house? I say, yeah. Do you have a room in that house? They say, yeah. Do they have furniture? I say, yeah. Well, you need to get married and bring your husband or your wife home. But they say, oh, my parents wouldn't allow that. Why? Because your parents is greedy. Because you tell me, my 17-year-old son, I've been checking him out since he was 12. I see what's going on in the morning with my young son, 12 years old. I see he's smelling different. I see he acting different. I see, you understand me, his clothes standing up you know, early in the morning. Come on, Dad. Come on, fathers, mothers. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You got a young daughter. You know, she, she had a mince. You know, she broke down and had a little mince and cried. Mom and, mom and daughter cried together and all that there. When she was 11 or 12, the prophet said, when your daughters reach the age of menstruation, make preparation for them to marry. Did he say that or not? Huh? Why? Because that's one of the signs that they can have babies. The babies have become women. Or aren't they young women? And they're on the way. 
You're supposed to help them out. Okay, if they don't get married at 11, I can understand. You said, come on, Shake. You know, I know, I know Aisha, she got married when she was nine. You know, but Shake, you know, we live in so-and-so, so, you know, you're all right, fine. So you don't get them married at 11. But you start. Don't you think by the time they're 15, you've got some good prospects? Don't you think by the time they're 17, you've got some prospects? You ain't got no prospects for your daughters at 19, 22, 25. They still trying to figure out and find that nice guy. They're looking for Mr. Perfect Guy. Brothers and sisters, I say, you need to ask yourself what contribution you want to make to society. You need to ask yourself what kind of identity crisis you're going through. Who are you? What do you want to become? Are you a Muslim? Are you committed to Islam? Are you a Muslim only committed to gaining something in this society like everybody else is chasing after? You got to ask yourself, are you chasing? Are you working? Are you dreaming for material acquisition? Overwhelming pleasure, cultural prejudice and fixation. If that's the case, then you are a Muslim materialist. You are a Muslim person seeking pleasure. You are a Muslim person who's a bigot. Ask yourself, do you like to sit next to? Do you allow black people to come in your home and eat with you? Would you allow your daughter to marry a black man? If you are black, would you marry an East Indian or a white person or someone else? Would you allow your daughter to marry a young brother who was a Hindu but became a Muslim? If you say no, then you are a bigot. You just like white folks that don't like black folks. You just like somebody that's black and you don't like somebody else that's black. But their blackness is different because it's a difference of culture. You see, you got cultural prejudice and you got racial prejudice and you got color prejudice. And as the Sheikh said, Muslims are just as prejudiced as everybody else. And we got to get out of that. You young people got a chance. You can break loose from that. Because you've got friends in school right now who's different colors, different races, different languages, different religions. You already got friends, colleagues, classmates. But you know they can't come home. You know that even if they are Muslim, you can't really be thinking about getting married. Because the cultural lines are so strong. The racial lines are so strong that it's like unthinkable. I say you got to overwhelm that. You got to overcome that. I ask you, where is your community and who is your leader? Here, I'm not talking about the, I'm not talking about the, uh, I'm not talking about no ethnic community. I'm talking about where is your religious community? Where you live at? Who's your leader? I didn't say who's your imam in the mosque, I said who's your leader? Because y'all ain't listening to no imams. Who's your leader? Who can arbitrate for you? Who can make a ruling for you? Who can make a determination for you? Who can make a final decision that you are bound to? Who does your mother and father go to for arbitration? Who can, who can make determinations over the civil matters of the Muslims? If the answer is, I don't know, that's a shame. 
What sacrifice are you willing to make to establish the deen of Allah? Ask yourself the question. How many young people in this room here own a car? Come on, raise your hand. How many young people in here own a car? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. So, fifteen. Yeah, you're young. Fifteen. There's maybe about 150 people here, 250. So 10% of the young people are sitting here own cars. And the cars you own, they ain't 10 years old. Y'all don't want no 10-year-old car. Y'all own nice cars. And most of you that own a car, your mom and dad own a car. So that means there's at least two, three cars in your house, your family. And most of y'all sitting here ain't never been hungry in your life. And most of y'all got plenty of clothes in your closet. So if you got plenty of clothes, you got cars, you got houses, you got a little money, then y'all got something to sacrifice. So I ask you, this college degree, this university degree that you're going to have in a couple of years, what you going to do with it? What kind of sacrifice you willing to make? The little money that you got right now saved up, the money you got access to, what sacrifice you want to make? What about your time? You got 168 hours a week that Allah has given you to live. Did y'all ever add that up? 7 times 24? Is that what it is? 168 hours? Out of those 168 hours that Allah has given you, are you willing to give 2 hours a week? 4 hours a week? Just for deed? Not for studies? Just for a struggle, for working in the deen, working around your masjid, your community center, working to, you know, to build up a platform inside the community, a presence for the Muslims to do social work, to work, go out to the poor places and give away something like I told the people last night. Take your clothes, collect clothes from the Muslims and wash them and iron them and then take them to poor places and give them out. I ain't talking about take your clothes and just put them in a bag and ask poor people to take them. Why should they take them looking like that? Wash them and iron them. Put them on a hanger and take them to the poor areas. Spend two hours a week out of seven times 168. How much is that? Seven times 100 is 700. Seven times 60 is uh, seven times 60 is how much? 420. So that's how much? That's, uh, that's uh, 700, 420. That's 1120. And seven times eight is what? How much? Seven times eight? Fifty-six. So, eleven hundred and forty-two and six hundred, eleven hundred and forty-eight and fifty, eleven hundred and ninety-eight hours a week. That's how we used to add when I was going to school. That's how we used to multiply like that, without a pencil. So, eleven hundred and ninety-eight hours a week. I say, will you give four hours a week to do what? To do charity in your community. To give away some money. $5 of your money. $5 of your mother and father's money. Beg your mother and father. Mom and dad, look, give me $5, please. Give me $5 for gas, and give me $5, and I'm going to give away to the poor. Because if you want to go to the movies, you're going to ask them for some money. If you want to buy some clothes, you want to go to the mall, you're going to ask them for some money. So I say, you young people, do what your mother and fathers won't do. 
Go out and see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, give in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Give some of your time. Give some of your money. Give some of your food. Give some of your clothing. Give some of your energy. Go out in the field every week and join with some other Muslims. And at the same time, do dawah. But just don't do dawah with no pamphlets. The people that you're talking to, man, you, got, you know, got an empty stomach. People that you're talking to ain't got no clothes. People that you're talking to ain't got no money. People that you're talking to, you know what I'm saying, living out of soup cans and, and whatever it is. You ain't got no heat, no lights in the house. You don't get living in the outhouse in the bush when the Muslims come out and start giving stuff away. Good stuff, nice stuff, good food, you know, cold, you know, coconut water and cold drinks and just giving away every week. They say, man, the Muslims is nice. I like the Muslims. They be coming down there all the time. Plus, every time they come, it be like 500 of them. And every one of them is looking for one of us to give us five dollars. You know, every time they come, I'll be there for they get there. And all they want us to do is sit for a half an hour and they be talking about Islam. You know, they be talking about the Quran. And they be talking about Muhammad. And, and, and I think he's a good man. He's just like Jesus. So some of them not some of them non-Muslims that we normally pass by. Some of them non-Muslims that we don't even see, that's invisible to us. Some of those non-Muslims, you start seeing them every single week. And some of them start coming into Islam through you, young Muslims. I say, what is your vision for Trinidad? What's your vision for Trinidad? Do y'all have a vision? Did you write a chapter? Can you write a chapter? Can you write a page? Can you write an essay? Can you write a thesis? My vision as a Trinidadian, as a young person, as a Muslim, this is my vision for Trinidad. And then, can you go further? Can you write a vision for the world? Because there are young people in universities all over the world today who have been given that same mandate to write a vision for America, to write a vision for Great Britain, to write a vision for Japan, to write a vision you know, for their country, and to write a vision for the world. And they, after they have written it, it has been put into a pool, and then they have been selected to go and recite their vision to the United Nations. Have any of you ever thought about that? Could you write a vision that could be heard in the United Nations? Why not? The world is just a global community today. Fiber optics and telecommunication, you could write your vision, put it on the computer, and two million, three million people could read it just tomorrow. They could just read it tomorrow. But you're not thinking like that. You're not thinking about even Trinidad. You're just thinking about your little area. I live in Chuguana. You know, that's, that's it. That's my little area. Oh, I live over this way. I live in Princetown. Oh, I live over this way. We're not thinking about Trinidad as an island. We ain't even thinking as far as Tobago. We're not thinking as far as Venezuela, which is only how many miles? Venezuela is how far? Seven miles what? Seventy miles. Seven miles. What's the capital of Venezuela? What's their byproducts? What's their GMP? Who's their president? What's their society? What's their language? What's their, what do they manufacture? What's the relationship between your country and that country? 
you probably haven't even thought about it and it's next door to you brothers and sisters I say I challenge you I challenge you to write I challenge you to speak I challenge you to think I challenge you to think to write and to speak and to think write and speak that which is unpopular that which may cause you some harm I challenge you to think to write and to speak and if necessary to stand up and die for what you believe because that's what young people are doing all over the world today young people who don't have any other options you have options and young Muslims and young non-Muslims living here in Trinidad that's what I'm challenging you to do to take the energy that God has blessed you with to take the mandate of faith that Allah has blessed you with to take the responsibility of dawah that Allah has blessed you with and to look at yourself and look at your family and look at your community and look at your country and look at the world and make your mark make your mark and I understand that my talking it ain't traditional religious knowledge and I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help me to respect the tradition the traditional knowledge to respect it but I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never have me locked up in a straitjacket of the traditions of the Muslim world that had trapped them and made them stagnant and made them so they can't perform and made them the victims of other people's domination and for that reason I always try to speak outside the box and I'm challenging you young Muslims to think outside the box that's what Bill Gates that's what he's telling his people today Bill Gates a man that is commanded over 67 billion dollars in the world today Bill Gates is telling his people at Microsoft if you really want to dominate the world with our product you have to think outside the box and I'm telling you Muslims think outside the box respect yourself respect your parents respect the elders in your community respect the people of knowledge respect your government Respect all the people who deserve respect, every human being. Respect the Christians, respect the Hindus, respect your classmates, your faculty, your staff, your administration. Respect everybody, but don't just become one among the many. Stand up and distinguish yourself. Allah has given you something to stand up for. Allah has given you something to be distinguished about. And that's what I'm challenging you to think for and to reach for. It calls for some effort. And may Allah bless you and help you to make that effort. I understand that, that if we have time, there's some questions that may want to be asked. And we don't mind to answer a few questions. Now, we understand that sometimes Muslims have a low toleration for talks. They can't sit too long. They got so many things to do. But I would say, if you got a few questions, this is the time to ask. Because maybe the statements that we have made, you didn't hear them before. 
And I would say we are more responsible to answer them than anybody else. Before you hear, before you hear somebody outside tell you about what we said, I say you should ask the question to us and give us a chance to answer about what we said. Because I already know that as soon as this tape here get back to some places, and if some of y'all go back to some of the places and say what was said, a whole lot of people got a whole lot to say about what we said. But it don't make no difference. We're responsible for what we say. So if you got a question, this is the time to ask. First of all, I think that, um, first I want to thank you for your, I um, want to thank you for your explanation and for your, your question. And uh, from what I got from your question, and there may have been parts of it that I didn't catch because, you know, y'all got that Trinidadian uh, twang. Sometimes I can't catch it, all of it. But what I did understand is that you are a practicing Christian, a conscious Christian who has a love for Jesus Christ and um, you have a daughter who obviously grew up and you wish for her to have the same but I think you said she's been affected by a group called the Nation of Islam is that what you said? the Nation of Islam and um, that you have you know read something uh, on uh, the religion of Islam and you basically appreciate the Islamic message and you've heard, saw some lectures on TV and other things and you don't have no great disagreements with it, but you just wish that you could appreciate that and still remain as you are. And, uh, and then you said something about, um, something about this, the Islamic sex and it seemed to me that, bottom line, is that you're getting some conflicting information about Islam. And therefore, it's having some kind of distortion about your feelings of your daughter being a Muslim or something of that nature. I don't know if that's the whole thing. But let me see if I can approach it from a different perspective for you. First of all, I would advise you that if you want to really know about Islam, to make an academic assessment, evaluation about Islam, don't look at Muslims. Because Muslims are not the proof of Islam. They are people just like yourself who claim to be sincere and inspired about the message of the Prophet Muhammad as you claim to be inspired about the message of Jesus Christ. Now, I wouldn't question your inspiration and you wouldn't question the inspiration of a Muslim. But the evidence and the proof of your religion is not you and other Christians. 
the proof and evidence of your religion is the words, the mission, and the person of Jesus Christ. That's the proof of your religion. And the proof of a Muslim's religion is the words and the mission of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. So, if you look at the words and the mission and the person of Jesus, the son of Mary, and the words and the, and the person and the mission of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, you're going to see two lines just like that. Just like that. Two lives. Two prophets. You see, one that prophesies the other and the other that confirmed the other. Two men, two prophets, two messages, two books, two revelations from one God. That's one. Second thing, sister, is that I don't like to be talking about other groups. But I just have to say to you categorically that the people who call themselves the nation of Islam, they have a right to call themselves what they want to call themselves. But we come from a country where that organization and their belief system is very clear to us and in some cases very near to us. So we know what they believe. And let me say this. The Quran tells us that Almighty God is one. He has no partners. Okay. And that he doesn't come in the form of a man. He don't come in the form of a woman. And that there's nothing in the creation that is similar to God. That's one. So the nation of Islam said that, say, I mean, you read there, if you get their newspaper, it says right there. If you go to their website, it says right there. We believe that Almighty God came in the form of Master W.D. Fard in the year 1935. So if they believe that Almighty God came in the form of a man, and the Quran says that God is the creator, and there's nothing in the creation like him, obviously that's two different religions. The second thing is, our religion says that Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, the son of Abdullah, is the final prophet in a long line of prophets. Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Jacob and Isaac and Ismail and John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, and the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, and there are no prophets after him. But this people called himself the nation of Islam said that this man Farid, who came in the form of a man who was supposed to be Allah in the person, Astaghfirullah, that he appointed a man called Elijah Poole, that was his name, as his messenger, and then gave him a new name called Elijah Muhammad and made him a prophet. So those are two different religions. They also say that there is no hereafter. While we believe in the hereafter, they also say that there's no resurrection after death. But we believe in a resurrection after death. So, obviously, they can't be the two same religions. Now, they are people that believe in social reform. They are people who, who, who are cleaning up their lives and, you know, fighting against drugs. And so we don't want to be saying that we're fighting against those kind of people because anyone that's trying to do some good is good in that sense. But different religion. So if your daughter is in the nation of Islam or she bringing home them kind of stuff like that, maybe you should have some of us to talk to her so that she can make her choice between Islam and Islam. Between somebody who's claiming something and those who's following the book of God and the messenger of God 
and that final religion, which is just like your religion, with, as you said, a few small discrepancies. So I say to you, be patient. I say to you to be patient. And the other thing is, you need to sit with someone, bring someone into your home whom you respect to sit down with yourself and to sit down with your daughter or your son or your husband uh, and explain what Islam is. So you can see it for yourself. Not that you will become a Muslim, but at least you will have the fair appreciation of it. After that, you can make a better choice and you may be able to communicate better with your daughter or your son or your husband or whomsoever else in your family. Okay? Our sister, I would like to have you to respond back, but I think there's probably a number of other questions. And I, I'll tell you what I'll do is that when we finish up here, you know, uh, uh, I don't mind to sit to the side with you. And my wife is here, and that's my little son running around here pulling on stuff. I'll sit to the side with you and my wife, and we'll try to address that question for you, okay? Thank you so much. Any other question? Yes, stand, please. Yeah, go ahead. Salaam alaikum. Salaam alaikum. Two quick questions. The first one, uh, I function in a community where HIV needs uh, should become a problem in the community because of the same thing that you were speaking about. There were young people, the almost and sisters, and also brothers, who had contracted this virus and were living in our community. And because of the ignorance they were talking about, were actually spreading this virus in the community. As a young person, I took up the one group within the community. And we brought in people to speak about HIV. It's not protection and compromise and that kind of stuff, but about HIV awareness and what they see this because we understand what it's called. We received a lot of opposition from the leadership community for that action. And one of us was sick and they recommended for that. Also, there are a lot of things in regards to like drugs and all other things that are going on in the community, which we need to speak all against all the time. Also, for these things, we are reprimanded. And what we try to make changes or ask for changes that we make with the way the community is covered, we are often reprimanded on the side. And often told that, you know, actually, when we formed the group the first time, they said we gave it all two weeks. You know, when we all went as bad after that, so we can only really take them seriously. Up to this point, we've spoken, we've sat and spoken with leadership, we try and make things. What can we do within the law of Islam beyond talking, beyond just sitting and just saying that we would like this and we would like that? What can we do that is beyond that, that we affect the change that we need? That's one. And two, um, what are your views with regard to, because we have very strict views with regards to the politics of this country. And Islam also. A lot of Muslims in this country will be able to do align themselves politically before they align themselves Islamically. Um, my stance is that any law that is not the law of Allah, I will not judge by it, I will not live my life by that law. So the law of Allah comes first for me. So I will not align myself politically, except that I align myself with the law of Allah. So what is your view with regards to that? And what would you say to me as a young person who is trying to achieve that part? of the Islamic society, which I have. How do I do that? How do I do that? There two questions you were talking about. One is addressing what you consider to be social or moral uh, situations 
in the Muslim community such as AIDS and other related issues that may be taboo, unpopular to the quote-unquote status quo of the Muslims. I say Muslims who are status quo, they have been sweeping stuff under the rug for the last 100 years. And the rug done piled up now. You keep on sweeping stuff under the rug like it don't exist, it starts making humps in the rug. Sooner or later you walk across the rug and fall on your face. Then you're going to see you need to pull that rug up. By that time, you got so much stuff under there to address, you might need to rip the whole rug up. So I'm saying to you, be prudent. Don't be rebellious. Be respectful. Do your research. If you want to be an activist, understand the parameters. Go to the people who are respected in the Muslim community until you find somebody who will give you the support that you need. Because you need support, you need guidance. You can't just jump out there because you know there's something that needs to be spoken about, something that needs to be addressed. Find an ally. If there are 160 mosques with 160 leaders, then I'm saying, brother, there is one or two who will be an ally, who will say they want to enjoin the right and forbid the wrong, and they will give you some advice on how you can address those issues. If you can't find nobody in Trinidad, write to me. Because young people have to address those issues. Those issues have got to be addressed. You can't keep sweeping them under the rug. There's Muslims in Trinidad that's got AIDS. And they didn't all catch AIDS because of sex. And they didn't all get AIDS because they were shooting drugs. Some people came to Trinidad from somewhere else and they were born with AIDS. And what the people need to know about is that AIDS is a conspiracy. AIDS is a manufactured drug. AIDS is a disease that was made. It wasn't a disease that came from sex or, drug or, or needles or green monkeys. AIDS is a manufactured disease. And two-thirds of all the people in Africa that's got AIDS was born with AIDS. So what crime do they have? Yet the Muslims, while the Christians and the Hindus and everybody else is sending people to Africa to work with those people, the Muslims don't send nobody. Do what you think you got to do, but seek some guidance. Seek some support. Find an ally among the leaders of the Muslims, if not here, in Tobago. If not in Tobago, in, in, uh, in, uh, in another next country, Grenada, or in Jamaica, or somebody, because you will find a Muslim scholar who understands that issue, who understands sociology, or who understands political activism, who, or whoever is a doctor who understands those kinds of political, social issues, or is concerned about humanity, and they will stand up for you, and they will help you. Do your research. Just don't be an activist. And on the other end, about taking whatever stand you want, people got a right to choose a political party here if they want to. Whether they do first or last. If a person want to follow the, the MMP or the PMP or whatever they want to follow, let them follow that. At least they took a stand somewhere. What I would suggest for you to do is to remind them that whatever choice they make, put God first. 
put scripture first, put morality first, do the right thing, not because it's your party, but do the right thing. Do that so you're adding another voice. But don't make it no absoluteness and that y'all shouldn't be choosing no party. If there's anything, it should be Islamic party. Then what's happening, you creating another divide. And maybe that's too radical. Let people make their choices. But you come with another voice. Add your voice. But keep in mind, you're young. You ain't went down the road too far. You might be a young intellectual. You might be a young activist. You might be bright. You might be committed. But you need support. And you need to belong to a community. And you need a leader. And you need yourself to be planted firm. Because young people are naive. They might be inspired, but they're naive. So I say, keep on doing what you're doing. Don't lose your spirit. Don't let nobody break your spirit. And don't let no old fogies tell you that you ain't got the right to stand up and help some people who is underprivileged or disadvantaged or broken down or diseased or whatever. Because remind them that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, before he was a prophet and a messenger, he was a social worker. Remind them of that. That's what I have to say. Uh, there is, a, there is a, a couple of questions that's right here. So before I sit down, I get the mic to the, 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 the imam. If you don't mind, I, I just let me pass this over to the imam. On that same topic? Yeah, on that same topic, I just wanted to, just to, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I admire about IBN, what, IBN? Its founder and CEO is a young man that took a stance, a very brave stance, to bring about some kind of social change in the society. You see? So, so again, uh, alhamdulillah, look what, listen to what the Sheikh has said, okay? There are things you can do. You don't have to be waiting around for folk, you see? I'm quite sure that people, if he went and, and, and listened to a lot of people, you wouldn't have that station. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of things can be done like that. Young people got to be brave and courageous and bold. You see, if leadership is stagnant, young people can get together and meet and organize for good. For good. Get together. You know what I'm saying? To organize different social things, social uh, 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 groups to do good for the community, to bring good for the society. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? Don't let nobody stop you from doing that. And the IBN station is a manifestation of that because, again, I'm sure they're looking to bring about good to society. So you can use that as an example uh, to do other things in that area, inshallah. Right. Okay. I got two here. Okay. Uh, I just want to help you shake out with some of these questions, inshallah. Um, one of them is uh, uh, how are we expected to marry when there is not many strong Muslim men to marry? Just look at those who attended this lecture. SubhanAllah. That's very good. And it's okay. You know, alhamdulillah means that the women are very, very uh, observant. And, it's, and, and, and she underscored strong Muslims. So I think it's really a message to the brothers. Brothers, we got to get it together. That's all. And maybe we need to sit out another forum, just the, 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 the sheikh and myself and some of the leadership and have a man-to-man -man talk about these issues. I don't want to embarrass nobody, but the, the observation of the sister is right. And, and, and it, it is a problem in our ummah. It is a serious problem, all right? We're lacking the strong men, all right? 
and we need to sit down and talk and deal with that, inshallah. But I would encourage the sister to be patient, inshallah, because there is somebody suitable, you know, and Allah will, Allah, if you feel Allah, Allah will make a way for you. Uh, alhamdulillah. Uh, what advice do you give to people who find it difficult to resist temptation, such as going to clubs? So, so that means the shaykh was right on point. SubhanAllah, the shaykh was right on point dealing with the issues. And, and, and this is why it's important that we talk. I would say very briefly, you know, uh, uh, the company you keep, you got to be around good Muslims. You got to be around Muslims that have taqwa. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said that a man follows the religion of his friends. So you should be very careful. So you got to be with the good people. That's the bottom line. You got to be in the Muslim environment. You know, a good friend and a, and, a, and a bad friend is like a perfume merchant and a blacksmith. So when you go, go to the perfume merchant, he'll put some perfume on you or you get the scent. If you go around the blacksmith, all right, which is like the bad person, then you'll get burnt or you get the smut on you. You smell. So it's really the environment. That's what you have to do. Being around a good Muslim who remembering Allah. Remember what I said earlier about that young person who will be under the shade of, 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 of God, Allah, under their judgment because they held on to their deen. But you just can't do it by yourself. You, there, there are many other good young Muslims. So you've know, so you got to be with the Muslim. And, and there is no problem in young Muslim organizing you know, Muslim clubs in groups amongst themselves to do good and to, and, to, and, to, and, to, and, and to protect each other. You see what I'm saying? We need to do this. Alhamdulillah, Sonic. Uh, brothers and sisters, um, there are a couple of questions that uh, are somewhat related and I'll just answer them kind of like together. Uh, the first one says that um, what advice would you give to a Muslim who reads a hadith or Quranic ayah and starts to follow it without doing further research and they encourage others to do so well you know first of all we have been told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, you know not to to follow things about which we have no knowledge so you know it's alright for us to be quoting ayats that are popular quoting hadiths that are popular but Allah also mentions to us you know why you say what you don't do why you be quoting stuff that you don't really understand why are you quoting stuff, you understand me, just to be quoting stuff that you don't really do. But another way to look at it is that if they quote a hadith to you or an ayah of Quran to you, but you think they don't really have the knowledge, well, you take the ayah. You take the hadith. Because it's still an ayah of Quran. It's still a hadith. Even if a Christian reminds you, uh, excuse me, brother or sister, doesn't your Quran say this? Don't your prophet Muhammad say that? Why are you acting this way? You ain't got no right to rebel because a Christian telling you that or a Hindu telling you that. The ayah of the Quran has been recited. And Allah mentions about those people that when they hear a verse of the Quran that, that, that their eyes fill with tears and their hearts fill up. You know what I'm saying? Whatever. So I say when an ayah of Quran is recited to you, don't think about the person who's saying it, whether they understand it right or not. Take that for yourself. Seek the knowledge of it for your own self. Then, think constructively. At least that person tried to offer you an ayah. That person did give you a hadith. Maybe it is inappropriate. Maybe they didn't study. But they're just not saying something stupid. They're not giving you some philosophy. So say alhamdulillah for that. Then, uh, of course, the sister asked a good question. And she says, and I'll just uh, modify her, her long question. She's mentioning about a daughter of hers. Uh, she's mentioning about a daughter who she says... Uh, is a decent girl uh, who was brought up to dress right and pray right and understand Quran and respect her parents and all those things. But suddenly, she's gotten to the university. Now, 
She don't want to go to no events with her mother and father no more. She don't want to go to no Islamic events. It's like she's doing them a favor or something like that. And secondly, since she comes to the university, she started to get rebellious. And now her dress and her religion has deteriorated. Well, parents got to ask themselves where they sent her. Now, I understand we don't have that many choices. I understand that our children have to move on and get sophisticated knowledge and all that. But we have to insulate them. If you send your daughter to the university, that means you got, a, you got an extended responsibility now. That you send her and check her out when she come back home. Don't wait until a week later, a month later, six months later, a few semesters later, and that now you see what's going on. But even if that is the case, I say, mother, father, be patient. Check out yourself. See, have you created a situation at home that's, that, that where there's a bridge between you and your daughter? Maybe what's going on is that your daughter has entered the university and she's entered a realm of influence that is conflicting with your thinking. And maybe you don't want to come out of that traditional thinking. You want to take her like she's a little girl, 9 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, walking her by the hand, you know, to this mosque setting just to sit down in this same little thing, and she's seeing the world differently. I say, ask her what her thoughts about the world is. These questions that I ask today, ask her some of these questions. Ask yourself, read some of her textbooks. Sit down with her and ask her what is her opinion of the mosque. Ask her what is her opinion of the community. What is her opinion of the leaders in that community. Ask her her opinion about what she sees in the society with the Muslims. You may find out that she's frustrated. You may find out that she feels castrated. You may find out that she feels in a straight jacket. You may find out that she feels that some of those cultural things that you're putting on her, that fixation, she don't share that any longer. And you're shoving it down her throat. And she's saying, no, I don't accept that. Her rebellion is really not a rebellion against Islam sometimes. It's a rebellion against a static, narrow thinking. So maybe the, 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 the parents need to widen their thinking. Maybe they need to sit down with their children and talk shop. Open up. Forget that's your daughter. Want her to be your friend more than your daughter. Start talking to her like she's your friend, not so much like she's your daughter. Not expecting her to just do what you say. She going to school. She making choices for herself. She's being tempted. She's being faced with these challenges. And she's finding, in many cases, that the Muslim community don't have no answers for the challenges that she's facing. Now, I'm not defending your daughter. I'm only trying to give you a perspective. When I talk to my children as a friend, this is what they said to me. When I talk to my grandchildren as a friend, this is what they said to me. So I'm sharing that with you. And if that daughter of yours is here, because I ain't mentioned no names of the mother or nobody like that, I'm saying, daughter, don't forget about where you came from. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never bless you if you disrespect your parents. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not bless you if you just violate your home. Allah will not bless you if you just violate your moral consciousness and your Islam. So, let's everybody try to come towards the middle and tolerate 
and be respectful and benefit from everybody. If the mother and father come a little bit this way and the daughter come a little bit this way, you're going to find out, you know what I mean, that when they come that way, there ain't going to be no generation gap. They're going to be able to talk and work things out, inshallah. The last question I'm going to answer because it's part of this here, same one here. It says, I have some friends who easily fall into temptations and commit filthy acts. Their parents are aware of this. So what do I do? Knowing that the parent allow these things to go on. How do I approach them knowing that they are permitted to do these things? One, the Prophet said, as part of being a good Muslim, to leave alone that which is none of your business. I don't say ignore it. But I say, don't be trying to reform everybody's family. If those are your friends and you see them do some filthy acts, address the act. Don't hate the person, hate the act. Tell your friends that you hate it. Tell your friends you don't support that. And tell them in order to help them, if they don't stop, you will write to their parents. Because maybe their parents have the power to stop them. Then, in writing to their parents, don't blame the parents. Don't take the assumption that the parents approve it or even that they know about it. In many cases, parents don't approve of it. In most cases, they don't. And in many cases, they don't even know about it. You know, because kids are slick today. Kids are slick. You know, they're slicker today than they was 20 years ago. Kids got all kind of different ways to do things that parents don't even know nothing about. i tell you the truth. Most parents in this room today don't even know how to work them phones. Parents in the room today, they don't know how to even work them computers. Them kids know how to use them phones and computers and all that stuff. Parents don't even know because they don't even touch it. So don't assume that the parents know. But tell your friend, look, I'm your friend. And I don't want to stop my friendship with you. But I have to join the right and speak to the right, to join the right and, and forbid the wrong. And if you keep on doing that, our friendship is over. And secondly, if you keep on doing that just to help save you, I got to tell somebody. I got to report this to your parents, what I see happening. So your parents, maybe they can put you in check. Then write a letter to their parents if that's the last resort you got. Write a letter to, to your parents. Write a letter and say what you saw. Give your advice to the parents, whatever you can do. And after that, leave it alone because you cannot stop the world. You cannot reshape the world. I say you may have to choose another set of friends. You, who wrote this letter, you may have to choose a new set of friends. If your friends are doing filthy acts, you with the wrong friends. So may Allah bless all of us and guide us and have mercy upon us and forgive us. May Allah give us good consciousness. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive us for any words that we said that upset anybody. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide those who's not guided. And may Allah preserve those who have guidance. May Allah open up the hearts for the non-Muslims to be able to read the Quran. May Allah open up their minds to understand the Quran when they read it. May Allah get to make them familiar with the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, and to look into his actions and to be inspired, you see, by his personality and his behavior. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we become better examples of Islam, that we become windows to Islam that we become uh, the, 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 the mentors of Islam, that we become the models, the role models for each other. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the children are grateful for the parents that paid their way through school and raised them as Muslims and don't be rebelling against their parents. We thank Allah for the scholars, for the students of knowledge who are doing the best that they can do. But in some cases, they are limited. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless uh, the brothers and sisters who brought this about.
the student union, the student representatives, the faculty, you see, the, or whoever's director of this university. We thank IBM for organizing this. We thank Allah SWT for making it possible for us to come from America and to share this time with you. I am especially grateful. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we say subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika wa nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta wa nastaghfiruka wa natubu alayk.